So, Mark. Yeah? The lead character of this movie proudly, if dubiously, claims to have been born on the 4th of July. And I was wondering, if you could choose one holiday to be your birthday, what holiday would it be? So, I was thinking about this. And I realized how few holidays are on a specific day. It's basically 4th of July, Christmas Eve, Christmas, and New Year's. Also, Leap Day. And Leap Day. But and everything Flag else Day. Is... <laughs> what is Flag Day? Why flag does it day exist? It's June 14th, and it's the day in honor of the American flag. It is different from Independence Day. It is by far the dumbest holiday. I love getting into the weeds on the U.S. flag code. We're like, we have a lot of weird laws in this country about what you can and cannot do with the American flag. Like, for example, it is illegal to use the image of the American flag on anything that is intended to be thrown away. So, like, paper plates with the American flag on them? Illegal. It's illegal to wear the American flag on clothing. So, like, flag shirts from Old Navy? Illegal. They're more, the flag code's more of a suggestion than a law, I feel. If I ever run for office, I will be running on a platform of strict adherence to the U.S. flag code (laughs) and nothing else. I'm sure that'll go over great. Anyway, if I were to choose a holiday where my birthday is always the holiday, if that makes sense, I would want President's Day because people get the vacation, but your birthday would not be overshadowed because who cares about President's Day? The President's moms. <laughs> I think that President's Day is by far the least celebrated holiday. Mm. Columbus Day is up there, too. And the weather's better at Columbus Day. Maybe Columbus Day. But, Mark, you're forgetting. What about if you become the president? then you're going to be kind of doubling up and people will be, you know, not celebrating as much in the aggregate. I mean, the other question is, what if I open a used car dealership and I take their most sacred holiday as my birthday? Then it will get overshadowed. Do we celebrate the sitting president on President's Day? I feel like that's not a thing I've encountered. Uh, If I become the president, that's going to be... That's your platform. I don't know if I would announce it in advance. (laughs) I do love that we have... President's Day, and everyone knows we basically meet George Washington and Abe Lincoln and everyone else can go f*** themselves, essentially. Let's be real. Well, that's because previously, both of them were recognized as federal holidays. Both of their birthdays in February. So President's Day is a way of being like, alright, we're not taking off for everybody's birthday. I think we should take off every birthday of a president. Except then we'd have to celebrate terrible presidents, of which there are Many, but I do love the idea of 44 extra holidays. It is a little weird to celebrate the birthday specifically because, like, the birthday isn't what made them significant. Like, maybe you celebrate the inauguration or, you know, the some legislation they signed or something, but like, they, they were just babies at the time they were born. It's not like Christmas where the, the birth itself has some significance. You know, bringing in the inauguration is interesting because I would almost argue that counts as another holiday where the date's always the same because the date of the inauguration is spelled out in the Constitution. It has to happen on January 20th. So I would say that that counts. And there are like weird exceptions. Like in 2013, January 20th was on a Sunday 
So they held like a little private inauguration, and then the big public thing was the next day. You're really showing your D.C. area childhood colors here, because in no other part of the country would inauguration be considered even remotely a holiday. In 2005 and 2009, I got off school for the inauguration. Yeah, that is not a universal, even American experience. Yeah, in 2021, I had to take the day off. I think we should go back to a medieval European holiday schedule where the average is about one every three days is a holiday. There's like a a legitimate theory that one of the things driving the Reformation among like the merchant class was that they wanted to stop having to give their workers days off so frequently. I mean, I just love the weird meat exceptions that they came up with because people didn't want to only eat fish every three days, which is why beavers are considered fish in the Catholic Church. Of course they are. They swim. So that rich people can eat beaver meat on holidays where they're supposed to only eat fish. So at first I was like, the day I would choose to have be my birthday would be leap day because on the one hand... It's exciting when it actually falls, but then in the other years, you have more flexibility where, like, you can kind of choose between February 28th and March 1st which one you want to celebrate, and you can just be like, this is what it is. But then I thought about all of the people who think they're being clever but are actually being stupid when they're like, wow, so you're just two years old because there have only been two leap days in your life. And it's like, yeah, but there have been more years in my life, and I think I wouldn't want to deal with them. You would get so frustrated. You would, uh, by eight years old, you would have just given up and started lying that your birthday is not leap day. I also think that that would be a good red flag. Like if someone says that five minutes into a date, you can say, aha, this isn't going anywhere. And better to get it out, you know, sooner rather than some later red flag that wouldn't. I would wear one of those like clown flowers that sprays water on my like shirt so that if someone did that, I could spray them in the face with water from my flower and then leave. It only counts if it's seltzer. Yeah, I'm good with that. Uh, Maybe a nice hard seltzer like like the kids are into these days. (laughs) Shoot a white claw at someone out of a flower. So since I'm not going to do leap day, I think that the holiday that I will have for my birthday is, you know what? I'm going to say flag day because in the same spirit as your president's day choice, it will never overshadow my birthday. But you don't get work off on flag day. Yeah, but I'm a teacher. So I'm usually off work by June 14th anyway. Very selfish of you. I'm thinking about my friends who come to my birthday party. Yeah, well, I assume we could all go to the Flag Day Parade. Where the flag code is being violated willy-nilly by everyone there. Exactly, and we all sing George M. Cohen songs. Will just wants to have his birthday on Flag Day so he can give himself the birthday gift of yelling at people breaking the flag code. All right, Tim, what about you? What holiday would you choose? Um, so I'm not totally confident in this pick, but I think I would pick July 2nd. Oh, Because sure. you get the combination of... Born on the 4th of July, so I can say I was born on the day of our nation's independence, but I also have like a little, you know, party conversation of saying, you know, we really should be celebrating July 2nd instead of July 4th, because that's the day that the Continental Congress declared its freedom from Great Britain and actually was really just signed for the first time on July 4th. And, you know, just like the first date conversation about leap years, the person I'm talking with will immediately be enamored by this uh, historical trivia, and we'll be off to a great start. So in this one, you get to be pedantic. Yeah, Tim wants to give himself the <laughs> birthday so. gift of being a pedantic asshole on dates. 
I actually really just like getting sprayed with seltzer flowers. Oh, so this has become awkward because clearly what's going on is you are trying to set up a date between the two of us. Well, I mean, it won't be a very long date. And at the end, I can, with perfect comedic timing, say, check, please, once I get splash. So I think I think it'll be laughs all around. Free shot of White Claw and a comedic moment to end the date. I mean, that is the kind of stuff that, that the people love. It brings down the house. It's what you get in. What was that play called? Like, Puck's Bad Boy? <laughs> Peck's Bad Boy. That's the one. I like Puck's Bad Boy as a spinoff of uh, Midsummer Night's Dream. Yeah, I mean, you're, it's practically already there. I have no idea what you're talking about. So, Peck's Bad Boy was in the movie we watched. Oh, it's that was the, the name of the show. show. Okay. I can't remember yeah. any of the names of the shows because they did not seem to matter nearly as much as the song. What's funny is, like, all of the plays that he writes, some of which I'm familiar with. Like, I, I had to study George Cohen in college uh, for a class I took on musical theater. But, like, all of his plays sound like joke plays that someone would come up with to make fun of theater. Like George Washington Jr. Like George Washington Jr. There's like Naughty Nelly or Hello Broadway. I truly couldn't believe some of the names in this movie. It really felt like Daddy's Boy from Kimmy Schmidt could easily have just been slipped in here. I mean, Daddy's Boy is a specific parody of this movie. The other thing, talking about Peck's Bad Boy, is I loved, like... Apparently, that scene we were seeing was the end of, like, you know, some actual story. And I can't imagine the kid running around the store, like, the cop walking in and getting conked on the head. And that, like, is somehow this satisfying finale to this entire production that's been going on. Just, like, what in the world took place in the plot before that happened for that final 60 seconds to be a satisfying conclusion? Right. Especially because, presumably, the bad boy would have learned some sort of lesson. But what we see instead is him sowing chaos and then taking a bow. (laughs) Well, morals weren't invented until the 1920s. Before that, bad boys were just bad. He can lick any kid in town. I love the idea of of that scene, too, as we just get deeper and deeper into this movie, of actual, like, tough kids going to a vaudeville show, seeing an actor being like, I can lick any kid in town, and they're like, all right, we're gonna wait at the stage door and fight him to see if that's true. To be fair, he didn't say, I can fight all the kids in town at the same time. Right. This is like, you know, 1890s PolitiFact, though. Like, all right, he said it, let's go find out. That kid was such a piece of shit. I was so bad at him the whole time. I loved the performance, though. Great performance. Terrible child. All right, so we're starting to get into the weeds of this movie. Should we start talking about it? Let's do it. All right, welcome to We Love the Love, a Hollywood romance podcast. I'm Mark, and I'm gay. And I'm Will, and I'm a ginger. And this is an investigative podcast dedicated to examining one of the least important questions facing the world today. Does Hollywood romance actually make any sense? And are these people actually dateable or even likable? It doesn't matter if the romance is a main plot or a one-scene flirtation, or if sometimes it seems like a main plot but then goes away for a long time, or maybe at some point a romance seems to be starting that you maybe thought had been going on for a long time. Whatever it is, we will dig in and see what's there. And this week, we're going to be helped out by our good friend, Tim Lyons. Hey, everybody. And Tim, we've asked you here to talk about the 1942 musical biopic Yankee Doodle Dandy starring James Cagney as the Broadway legend George M. Cohen. I am very excited. To start off, I just want to say 
This is one of the most confusing romantic plot lines in a movie I've seen in a long time. And we have watched some terrible movies. Yeah, the romance is not only not the priority, it is arguably the worst part of the movie. And not a whole lot of sense. They keep tipping their hat to it being like it's going to grow in importance. And then it just never does. They're like, this is going to be something you should care about. And then it just fizzles away completely. Well, I read that they were continually rewriting the script. Or actually, not rewriting, just writing the script as the movie was going on. So it may be during each scene that they thought that the romance was going to grow in importance, and it actually never did. So one part of it is that in this movie, the only woman that George Cohen spends any time really dating is his eventual wife, Mary, played by Joan Leslie. In real life, George Cohen had two different wives. There's like his first wife, who came up with him on the vaudeville circuit, which we see Mary doing. And then he divorces her and marries someone else, like when he's in the big time. They merged those two wives into one character in this movie. And Cohen, who was still alive when this movie was made and is credited as a consultant, he encouraged the writers, like, put the marriage as late in the movie as possible. Because he was like, if my character gets married too early, my first wife will sue us for using her life rights without permission. Which is why the marriage happens so late, where, like, I was stunned when he proposed. I was like, I thought they had been married for, like, 30 minutes in this movie before this. And, no, they just kept pushing it off to try to avoid that lawsuit. For what it's worth, she did sue the production, but the case was thrown out. It's probably the funniest like most unintentionally funny proposal I've seen in a movie because it's not immediately obvious that it's a proposal. He's like, how would you like to keep taking care of me? And it's all basically a distraction from the fact that he gave away her song in the show. Nothing about this romance is obvious. Everything is slightly confusing. Also, after that proposal, they have what is clearly their first kiss. After they seem to have been dating exclusively for 20 years. This movie really does do some whitewashing of the George M. Cohan story. Yeah. I was really excited for the fight between him and Harris where he's a scab in the 1919 actor's equity strike. And then Sam Harris gets pissed and stops working with him for selling out the actor's strike. That would have been very exciting. Boy, would it not have fit the code of this movie. Yeah, I'm curious which side the uh, the working man um, that he claims to stand for, the common man, falls on the side of the uh, the actor strike. Okay, so we should, we need to talk about this a little bit. Just to be clear, as we said, Yankee Doodle Dandy is a musical biopic of George M. Cohen, who genuinely revolutionized American musical theater. He wrote a ton of massively popular songs of the Tin Pan Alley era in New York City, including Grand Old Flag and Over There, for which he was recognized with the Congressional Medal of Honor, as well as really pioneering the American musical comedy, moving it in the direction that we start to think of it today. We're like writing original stories paired with sometimes original songs. It's not quite getting to like the level being done by like Rodgers and Hammerstein and their various collaborators over the years where the songs are really integrated to the story, but he is playing a really big role here. So this movie comes out in 1942. Cohen is still alive, although he dies in November of that year. And it is the most like rah-rah George Cohen was a great guy who never had any meaningful conflict in his life. 
that you could really imagine. So one thing I learned by reading the um, Wikipedia page in my extensive research, the movie gets it wrong. He was not given the Congressional Medal of Honor. He was given the Congressional Gold Medal, which is different. Oh, sure. Could I tell you what the difference is? No, but it's different. Thank you for the clarification. If only they'd had Wikipedia back in 1942. Yeah, come on, guys. It feels like the little like the little ruffians should have punched the movie for misleading us that way. But also, Cohen was still alive, so you'd think they could just call him up or call him over and say, hey, can you pull out that medal? We just want to read the words on it. Does it say of honor or gold? Here's a wild thing about that medal. Um, Congress approved giving it to him in 1936, and Cohen didn't show up to accept it until 1940, because he didn't like the way the New Deal was going. So when actually could we say he was... There's like kind of a Marbury versus Madison thing here. Like if if the commission is granted, but it's not delivered, is it just a ministerial act? Um, I would say that he was awarded it in 1936 and received it in 1940. That sounds right. I truly don't think that matters. But what does matter is I've never seen so whitewashed of a biopic. Based off of this movie, this man did zero things wrong in his life ever, which is usually the antithesis of a biopic where every person does one thing wrong in their life and then they solve it. Usually to their wife. I mean, the movie doesn't really think it's wrong, but I feel like he's way off base with, um, this is jumping ahead to plot point too, but with pushing his young apprentice out on stage and having her sing a brand new song. Oh, totally. And he's jeopardizing her career by doing that. Like, he does things that look bad to us, but the movie thinks that they're very cool. Yeah, the movie does not think that a 10-year-old child losing his parents a contract by demanding too much is a bad thing. Like, he gets punished Okay, for the movie it. does think that that's not amazing because we do have Walter Houston like, criticize him for that, and ultimately spank him for that. And, like, as much as George Cohen is portrayed as a pretty much flawless character in this movie, the guy who really gets the, like, do-nothing-wrong treatment is his father, Jerry, played by Walter Houston, who is just, like, the voice of reason in all things, who is, like, the reasonable guy, maybe even to a fault, where, like, he won't push George for anything. He's just like, you know, we're gonna do what we're gonna do, and whatever works out, works out. Although his like third to last sentence on this earth, according to the movie, was threatening to wail and tar George Cohen if he steals the spotlight from his mother. That is true. Back in the 40s, that's not considered a bad thing. Threatening to tar your child is just a normal Monday night. I know. George basically agrees that he would deserve that if he did it. So I think as we're talking about this movie, we've talked a lot about some of the silliness of the portrayal of George M. Cohen the man who owned Broadway, as he was sometimes called. Really, to talk about it, we have to talk about the star. Because in this movie, he's played by Jimmy Cagney. It's the role that won Cagney his Oscar. I have only seen one other Jimmy Cagney movie, which is his gangster White Heat film, which I think is his most famous role besides this one. Uh, the Public Enemy is probably the other big one. Oh, right. I feel like it must have been so strange for Cagney, who mostly was just like a gangster dramatic actor to just show up and be, you know, like this actor songwriter. Like it would be like if Jason Statham in 2012 played Andrew Lloyd Webber in a random musical. For starters, I love that idea. 
And that, let's in, get that in development right now. That's maybe the only portrayal of Andrew Lloyd Webber I want to see. That's even like a kind of good visual symmetry. Jason Statham as his character in Spy playing Andrew Lloyd Webber. But as far as Cagney doing this, part of the thing is like he and George Cohen have a certain amount of biographical similarity because like Cohen, Cagney came up in vaudeville. Like he was dancing on stage from a pretty young age doing comedy and stuff like that today. And at the time, people mostly know him from gangster movies. But part of that is just because he was really good in them and was getting typecast and was having a hard time breaking out. And the reason he does this movie is because really he needed a little bit of like patriotic shine. There had been some movement in Hollywood trying to make a Cohen biopic earlier and Cagney had been approached and he refused because he resented Cohen for siding with producers in the 1919 actors equity strike. But in 1940, Cagney was named as a communist to HUAC because of all the work that Cagney did not just organizing equity, but also like helping to co-found the Screen Actors Guild and also like doing support for just other unions that were engaged in actions in Los Angeles. So he's named as a communist, which he denied, but it was still like front page news in the New York Times. And his brother, who's also a producer on this movie, told him that the best way to get past the communism accusation was to make, quote, the goddamnedest patriotic picture that's ever been made. And that was Yankee Doodle Dandy. Boy, did they accomplish that goal. It is interesting, like, watching Cagney's portrayal, because part of it you feel like it's an angle that the movie kind of does a little bit of tell-don't-show. Part of it is he's really a true believer. He's a patriot. He loves his country, and his country recognizes that he's really serving it through appealing to the masses through patriotism and kind of that link between patriotism and populism. And then part of it, it feels like he's a little bit of a P.T. Barnum right? Like he's selling a little bit. Yes. I thought about the greatest showman a decent amount during this too. Also in terms of their historical accuracy. That's how Cagney kind of wants to play it, but he knows that that's not what the movie is. And so he shies away from it a little bit. And it would make sense that it's not the right time for him to make this movie, that performance that he gives. And that's not what he wants it to end up as as the final product. Yeah, of course, this movie comes out in May of 1942. It was originally scheduled for July 4th, but George Cohen himself had cancer and Warner Brothers wanted him at the premiere. So they moved the release date up because they were worried he would die before the movie came out. And so like May 1942 is like six months after Pearl Harbor. The premiere was a paid premiere to raise money for war bonds. Like George Cohen wrote a bunch of like patriotic songs around World War One, and this movie is coming out as the United States is really entering World War II. And so there's like the patriotic element for Jimmy Cagney dodging the communism accusation, but also you can feel how this like really just hit the zeitgeist as the United States was entering another war. It's almost like with MASH, how MASH was nominally about Korea, but really it was about Vietnam, even though we're going to say that it's Korea. It's almost everything to do with World War One in this movie. You can kind of feel that it's really trying to make more of a statement about now, 1942, than it was, you know, the war that happened 25 years ago. Absolutely, which particularly fits in with the framing device, where it starts and ends with Cagney as Cohen portraying Franklin Roosevelt on stage. I do think this movie only makes sense in the context of World War Two. It is exactly that moment where you weren't allowed to question anything. It is all patriotism. It's like the few months after 9-11 where the concept of 
having any critical thought is just not allowed. It's the American flag shot from Spider-Man. Right. It's This movie is not allowed to criticize anything because it might then seem like they're criticizing America because he's so tied to just America by writing two songs, mostly. I mean, he wrote a lot of other patriotic songs, but he wrote two that really stuck right. in. And also Yankee Doodle Dandy. Two that gave him the Congressional Gold Medal. Because I think it's kind of funny that they were like, you're getting this medal for these two songs specifically. I mean, they were both like genuine, massive hits. I play over there for my history students when I talk about World War I and I talk about the culture in the United States at the time. And we have recordings of George Cohen singing these songs. And he has the kind of speak-sing style that Cagney's doing in this movie. Over there, over there, send the word, send the word over there, that the Yanks are coming, the Yanks are coming, the drums drum coming everywhere. That's actually part of, like, why he was approached for the role. There was some noise about, like, trying to get Fred Astaire to play Cohen, like, ah, the guy's a dancer. But Astaire said no, because he's like, I am a professionally trained, like, ballroom kind of dancer george cohen did like weird vaudeville like stiff leg dancing and i will not endanger my legs that way i don't think you could do better than casting cagney in this movie based off of his he just perfectly captures the dancing in particular honestly and it's unbelievable to watch i mean we've kind of made a lot of jokes about this movie i think it it doesn't really work as a piece of drama, because I think it eschews all sense of dramatic tension at every turn. But whenever the movie gets out of its own way and just lets Jimmy Cagney perform these musical, like, song and dance numbers, it is electric. Like, the Yankee Doodle Dandy sequence is like 10 minutes in the middle of this movie, and it's unbelievable. This is a movie where I cared so little about the framing device, and I just wanted to see more singing and dancing because if there's no dramatic conflict honestly sometimes i think about oh it'd be nice to see a movie where it's just people having a good time and i joke about that but having now seen a movie where there's zero conflict and it's just people having a good time i don't know if i stand by that because boy did i stop caring (laughs) about this man at a certain point i think it is the perfect framing device though and i think like most movies should have this framing device where the main character goes up on stage, does an impression of whoever the current U.S. president is, <laughs> then goes to meet them at the White House and then describes the film's events. It doesn't matter if it's an action movie, rom-com, horror movie, whatever. That's the thing. And like the premise is that this entire movie is a monologue of George Cohen narrating his life story to Franklin Roosevelt. Do we think he did, like, while he was in that room, did he do the singing? Did he do the dancing? I think probably not. Although I did like the note of Roosevelt mentioning that he had seen the family group, the four Cohans, in Massachusetts. And Roosevelt says that it happened when I was attending school near Boston. And we're like, really? Like, we're doing that? That is a long-standing tradition, Will. We should talk about Roosevelt for a sec, because I love this idea, going back to my framing device idea, that the president is going to be portrayed as this like Blofeld type. You're not going to see his face. You're just going to see him from behind. He's going to be dubbed by a different actor. Right, Roosevelt's played by actually, two people. They like, whoever did the dubbing, like clearly did multiple takes of the same line that they spliced together in different portions because it'd be like weirdly choppy. 
Like, I felt like he should have been stroking a cat as he was talking about this. The wild thing, too, like, you make the joke about, like, whoever the president is at the time. But because Roosevelt was president for so long, when this movie comes out, he's been in office for a decade. I think that this movie, if it had any courage, would have had Jimmy Cagney playing FDR, giving the medal to Jimmy Cagney playing George M. Cohan for playing FDR. I mean, you'd have to just, like, use doubles because they didn't have parent trap technology at this point. I mean, I guess at least it would the same voice because they really do like you do not see anything more than the slight curve of his face and his glasses in this movie the actor playing fdr it's a weird weird opening it's just so weird that a man is playing a man who played a man and he's talking to another man who's playing the man who that man playing a man played you just wanted to say that yes (laughs) i literally thought that they were doing like when I first heard the dubbing, it sounded so weird that I thought they were doing like a dead men don't wear plaid thing. Like they were actually playing old footage of actual FDR and then having like kind of cutting it into stuff that makes it sound like he's talking to George Cohen and Cagney's responding to that as if it's uh, diegetic dialogue. Like Carrie Fisher in Rise of Skywalker. Exactly. Or uh, Nixon in The Post, where they like have an actor through a window who is Nixon, but they're just playing tapes of White House recordings. Just, I thought you did a great job tonight. So uh, Yankee Doodle Dandy was directed by Michael Curtis, who's a Hungarian director, who not only released this movie in 1942, which was a gigantic hit, uh, it made six and a half million dollars, which is tons of money from 1942. It was the biggest box office success in Warner Brothers history at that point. He also, in that same year, had Casablanca premiere. Because he directed both of them. He is a star, if I've heard of one. Yeah. Um, he also directed, like, Errol Flynn and Betty Davis in star-making roles. He made movies like Captain Blood, which is an Errol Flynn classic. Angels with Dirty Faces, also starring Jimmy Cagney. And White Christmas, our favorite Christmas musical that just barely doesn't have blackface in it. Which, of course, this movie does. Yeah, it hadn't occurred to me to be worried about it. But I should have been, because... We have this whole montage of the four Coans, George Coan, his sister, played by Jimmy Cagney's actual sister, and their parents, like, doing their vaudeville tour, and in one part of this montage, they are doing a blackface performance. I felt kind of of two minds about it. Like, obviously, it's horrible, but if you remove it, and they really did it, like, are you really just kind of sanitizing it further? It feels like kind of a lose-lose. If you're going to talk about this movie sanitizing, why not sanitize it all? You've cut every other edge out of this movie. <laughs> that is true. They sanitized everything else. And you can tell you can tell it's on the way out in cinema at least because there's no performance. They just basically have a shot of the family in blackface. It's on the way out, but it's still happening. 1942 is also the year of Holiday Inn, the classic Irving Berlin Christmas musical that does have blackface in it. Maybe I'm projecting, but in both Holiday Inn and this movie, you can sort of see the actors are a little bit uncomfortable. No one, no one's, you know, throwing 100% into this. But maybe I have I'm actually projecting. not seen Holiday Inn. It's one that I keep meaning to watch, but I keep choosing movies that don't have blackface over it. I mean, I absolutely love it, absent that five-minute sequence. It's There's a reason that they, like, cut that out on TV instead of uh, yeah. just, you know, throwing the film in the trash altogether. Uh, I just, I can't do it. 
I see it. I almost didn't want to watch this movie anymore after it. It's really hard for me to just... And I was glad. I was like, if there's a performance, I'm fast-forwarding through it. But they just panned across them, and I was like, this is terrible, and I still don't want to watch anymore. But at least it's just a pan. Speaking of the uh, the Holiday Inn comparison, both of these films also have a performance. In this case, it's actual black actors, but of Abraham Lincoln. And he's, yes. he's placed Oof. in essentially the position of a deity as about a dozen black cast members are casting their gaze up to him with arms raised, uh, which, you know, while perhaps, you know, not on the same level as blackface is a different sort of uncomfortable. I mean, it's like, it's good that according to this movie, George M. Cohen thought that slavery ending is an objective good, but it's terrible that black people are shown worshiping Abraham Lincoln. It's also just worth noting, if we're having fun with that, that that statue of Lincoln is clearly Lincoln as he appears in the Lincoln Memorial, which had not been built (laughs) at the time that that scene takes place. Okay, hold. What? It hadn't been built yet? The Lincoln Memorial is built in the 1920s, Uh, and that scene takes takes place place... before World War I. Right. Okay, so it's black people worshipping a future i mean if a giant statue teleported from the future and landed in front of me i'd be a little thrown off maybe reverent towards it i think will what you're saying is like the makers of this film can't even say well look this is just an actual george cohen uh he put this in george washington jr we're just being historically accurate because that is not what that scene looked like in correct that is not how it would have appeared on stage And, like, that's a sequence that I have some affection for because I am repeatedly on the record on this show of loving Civil War music. And that sequence is a montage, really, of different Civil War songs. And so I'm all in for that. But we also have this troubling racial politics with an anachronistic statue. This movie really tries to, like, it is very pro-Dixie, but also tries to position itself as anti-slavery. They sing a lot of songs about how the lot of the, like, we love old Dixie and old Virginia, which at the time that the songs were being written, old refers to the actual antebellum period. Yeah, Dixie's a weird song in terms of history because it is written in the actual antebellum period, despite its reference to, like, old times there. Like, it is not a post-war song. And before the war, it's just considered, like, a part of Americana to the point that on the night of his last public appearance, like not counting like just going to Ford's Theater, like his last public speech on the occasion of the surrender of Lee's army, there's a band there and Lincoln asks the band to play Dixie for him because he's like, I really like that song. And I think by all rights, we have won the song back from the South. Like it has a weird history to it. I'm not saying like we should say Dixie is cool and play it, but I'm saying like the politics of it, especially among white people, during the 19th century are funkier than we would imagine today. Wouldn't a song about old Dixie in the, like, pre-Civil War era refer to just, like, British colonization? It's an abstract old time, like, within memory, but a while ago. Now, after the war, it largely comes to be understood to mean antebellum. And so there's the tricky thing, too, of, like, how the lyrics change over time. There really is more Bradley in this movie. It kind of interesting to look at just how the idea of patriotism has changed over the past 80 years like you know 
whatever you want to say about the movie being kind of jingoistic and propagandistic, which it certainly is on both fronts, there's none of the sort of like passive aggressive patriotism that you see today. It's genuinely joyful. People love their country, not at the expense of others or other countries. They just love it because it's their home and, you know, they love the people in it and the places in it. I think what's striking about it, too, is the way that it is for its time. You know, we've talked about this blackface sequence, like very deliberately an inclusive patriotism in the way that it's framed, where like this big play of like celebrating American patriotism in George Washington Jr. does include African-Americans as having a claim to it. At the beginning of the movie, FDR compliments Irish Americans on being very patriotic. And the thing is, at the time that the four Coens would have been performing in vaudeville, Irish Americans in many of those places would have been viewed as the scum of the earth. Well, it's interesting because the the father, the first time we see the father, he's doing essentially like a minstrel show number that's self-deprecating toward Irish people. He's hitting every yes. Irish stereotype. You know, I forget if he talks about drinking a lot, but it's essentially, it's not, it's supposed to be the Irishman as caricature. And that's the first song we see George perform as well as a young boy. And so I think that, again, if we're thinking about like patriotism and this movie as World War II propaganda, it is a patriotism that is pointedly casting a big tent. Or I guess you cast a wide net and, and pitch a big tent. It's definitely a patriotism that is not pointed at others, which we are kind of in an era of where you use your patriotism to downplay the claim over the country of others. I think yeah. of that line at the very end where they're traveling around the world and he's not saying like America is better than these other countries. He even says like, boy, good thing I didn't grow up in England because there'd be so much history there that I could write about. He's acknowledging I would love any of these countries as my own if I grew up there. Yeah, really the only people who are mocked in the vein that Mark was talking about, the way that now so many people are targeted for be having the wrong kind of patriotism or not really being American or whatever, which obviously did happen in the 1940s and in the 19-teens, but it's not really portrayed in this movie. Like, the closest we got to that what? is... <laughs> a, a, a negative aspect of history portrayed incorrectly in this film? <laughs> Look, we talked about Within Our Gates. That episode is still there. Like, the only people who are really called out are, like, the Faye Templeton types who look down on patriotism as being, like, the stuff of the masses. Like, they, they think they're too good for it and are told over and over again, like, no, this is the way of the future. Get on board. Which you also see having a message resonating in 1942. Like, everybody needs to get involved in this patriotism. Everybody needs to get involved in the war effort. You're not too good for this. I think it is interesting that this movie's cinematographer is of Chinese descent. And the man filming this movie is married to a white woman, but his marriage isn't legally recognized. And they don't live in the same house because it would cause too many troubles. Yeah, the guy's name is James Wong Hao. He's like a great cinematographer of the 1940s. And yeah, his marriage wasn't recognized because of anti-miscegenation laws. And he couldn't become a U.S. citizen for several years after this movie was made because the Chinese Exclusion Act not only blocked immigration from China, but people who were already in the United States could not become citizens. And that law wasn't repealed until 1944. It is just interesting also because, I mean, the director being Hungarian, it is not that far from when even Hungarians were considered basically not white. So the production crew right. is... They'd be ethnic. Th they're ethnic. The production crew is 
definitely people that would not be included in a traditional patriotism at the time. So the people making the movie have the claim to patriotism that someone who was Irish in the 19-teens would have. I don't know anything about the writers as much, but at least the director and cinematographer. So the writers, uh, it's credited to Robert Buckner and Edmund Joseph, who were staff writers at Warner Brothers. Buckner actually was promoted to producer because this movie was such a big hit. There is uncredited work done by a pair of identical Jewish twins, Julius and Philip Epstein, who also wrote Casablanca and won the Oscar for it. This movie is just so different from Casablanca. But again, if we're thinking about like groups that would not have fit into the strictest vision of patriotism during the peak of Cohen's career, Jewish Americans would be a part of that. When we did our Night at the Museum episode, I talked a little bit about Theodore Roosevelt's opposition to what were called hyphenates, where actually the last speech that Teddy Roosevelt ever gave was an anti-hyphen speech. The whole point being, you shouldn't think of yourself as a German-American or an Italian-American or whatever. You should just think of yourself as an American and not try to maintain a separate identity. But that was based off of a very limited understanding of what it means to be an American. Right. That's not to say that this movie is just actually, I, this movie is just kind of weird. <laughs> it's a strange movie. Again, I don't think it's a great movie. I think the performance sequences are great. It is genuinely incredible to watch like the little Johnny Jones sequence and George Washington Jr. and all that. But, but the rest of it doesn't quite do it for me. I found the story so much less compelling than other musicals that don't really care about the story as much, if that makes sense. Like, Gold Diggers of 1933, the story matters, but it's not as much as the Busby Berkeley numbers, which are the star of the show. But I cared about those Gold Diggers much more than I cared about the characters in this movie. I haven't seen Gold Diggers in 1933, but I think I get what you're saying. And I think it's probably because the numbers in this are supposed to have more thematic significance and not just be kind of like, entertaining little ditties on their own than say in a rom-com where really everything's just a vehicle for some spectacle and in a george cohen musical that's what it would be everything would be a vehicle for a spectacle like the story would be pretty thin the point of it is to be a framing on which to hang like good musical numbers the problem i think in this movie is that it doesn't really it, it's trying to have it both ways where it does want to, like, get out of the way and spend a long time watching a big musical number, but it also wants us to, like, really care about Cohen and his life, but it also wants him to be portrayed glowingly in all things. So anything he does that would cause a conflict is resolved immediately, in large part because Mary is impossibly understanding. There's no real tension ever showed, and so you're never like, wow, like, how is any of this going to work out? Because the answer is always just like, things are going to work out for George Cohen. And it's going to work out immediately and without too much conflict. Like, it never, even when we have the sequence of him, like, pounding the pavement, it never really feels like he's struggling. It's also difficult to imbue a lot of significance to a guy whose claim to fame is writing stuff that's, you know, pretty trivial and fun and upbeat and lighthearted. Like, you know, to use maybe too harsh a word, like most of his work was fluff, right? The one time he tries to write something serious, personality, it bombs. He realizes that's not what I'm good at. I'm good at writing, you know, fun musicals for the masses. We should acknowledge, too, uh, the show is called Popularity. Popularity. Another example of the movie 
massaging things. Uh, popularity premiered and flopped in 1906, which is eight years before the start of World War I and nine years before the sinking of the Lusitania. Whereas in the movie, popularity flops and Cohen is like, wow, the Lusitania has been sunk. I got to double down on patriotism. Whereas in real life, he's like, ah, oh, popularity flopped. It's 1906. Guess I'll double down on patriotism. I think one of the best encapsulations of this movie is the scene where he and Harris are splitting up, which in real life was a contentious fight and it took a while for them to get along. They're like, we're not working together, but we're still best friends and we're the first partnership in show business that had two senior partners and I'll always be there for you. Yeah. Sam Harris is played by Richard Worf. I find enormously compelling. I think it's a great performance. I always wanted more of what was going on. But again, after that scene where they team up, he doesn't really do anything. They part ways without tension, which is inaccurate. But of course, you can't have George Cohen get in a fight with anyone ever. It's just a strange movie. It would be like an Elton John movie where they don't tell you what Bernie Toppin's doing. Like he's just hanging around there. Right. The other thing is, I didn't realize... Mark, that it actually was contentious in real life, which is hilarious how they sit like they not only sanitize it, but they lampshade that they're sanitizing it. It would be like in a movie about a guy who had a, a famous affair that, you know, the paparazzi shows up and he's at a restaurant and they're like, hey, this is that woman you're having an affair with. And he says, what? No, you guys have it all wrong. This is my cousin. And everyone goes, oh, and then they never spoke of it again. <laughs> Nonetheless, I think we think Cagney is pretty compelling. There's some stuff that's good in this movie, but it's ultimately kind of hard to get a hold on. As I said, it was a big box office success. It was also a major awards player. It got eight Oscar nominations, including nominations for Best Picture, Best Director, Best Writing uh, for Original Screenplay, Best Supporting Actor for Walter Houston as Jerry Cohen, and Best Editing. And they won Best Actor for Jimmy Cagney, as we said, Best Music, Best Score, and Best Sound. The movie was also on both AFI Top 100 lists. It was number 100 on the original list and number 98 on the updated 2007 one. It's also all over all the other ones. Number 97 on the AFI's quote list for My Mother Thanks You, My Father Thanks You, My Sister Thanks You, and I Thank You. Number 88 on AFI's 100 Cheers list. Number 18 on their musicals list. And number 71 on the song list for Yankee Doodle Boy. I have to say, there are a lot of things I liked in this movie. I've read the AFI lists, and this is maybe the last movie I'd expect to get reevaluated more favorably 10 years later. Right. It's when they also have another 10 years worth of movies to maybe consider, and like the only one they add is The Fellowship of the Ring, maybe Chicago. That's a pretty. I. This is the movie I maybe have the most problem with being on the list. I can think I'm of sure you can find something that's a bigger so, problem. Yeah. I just I think the fact that they moved it up really is the kicker. And it's not like the list was updated in October of 2001 where there's a surge of patriotism. It's just No, it's like 2007 when everyone's fed up with the Bush administration. Yeah. I don't know what it was that led them to like this movie more. It's not even about Hollywood, the AFI's favorite thing to put movies on the list about. Yeah, but it's a showbiz movie. Yeah, but it doesn't like the pictures, Will. Um, we are an hour into this recording. Should we talk about the romance? Yeah, I was about to say. I mean, it's not like we're going to have much to say about the romance of this movie, but let's get into it. 
Every week, we break down the romantic plotline of the film into five points to guide our discussion. Tim, as our guest, will you take us to point one? All right. So I did manage to divide this into five different scenes. And I actually think despite the confusingness of the romance, it actually does divide pretty well into five different sequences. So number one, we have what I've called the old man scene. And in this scene, Jimmy Cagney, George Cohen, who is dressed up like an old man from his number, has somehow convinced Mary, who's in the audience, that he is, in fact, about 60 years older uh, than he actually is. Pipperino, isn't she? Yes. Is she your daughter? No, I'm not married. Your niece, perhaps. No, she's just a kid with the show. We've been dating. Isn't she a little too young for you? No, she's getting along in years. She's 17. Right, he's playing the father of his mother's character in this play. And can we mention, actually, because he's playing the actress who plays George Cohen's mother, I believe, was younger than Jimmy Cagney was. Um, that's Rosemary DeCamp, and yes, she was. She was born in 1910, and Cagney was born in 1899. You notice in the scene where the four are together, especially in the early sequences, or I guess early enough that Josie is fully grown, but they really just look like sisters. Yes, absolutely. So Mary comes backstage and is seeking out advice and wisdom from this supposedly sage old man who looks like he's about 75. Of course, he's actually about 20. I don't know. I don't. I forget if they say what it's exactly. Is. I don't think he's even 20. I think he's like... Maybe of course, Cagney is 42. So we have that to deal with in terms of the realisticness of the scene. But um, Cagney slowly takes off his makeup and Mary becomes more and more freaked out by all of this because she is seeing an old man de-age before her eyes. Well, even before that, even before he de-ages, the chorus girl like knocks on the door and is like, hey, are we on for our date later? And he's like, oh, absolutely. Meet you in five minutes. And Mary's like, is that your niece? And he's like, oh no, I'm going out with and her. And don't forget, he refers to her and, as a pepperino. Right. And Mary goes, well, don't you think she's a little young for you? And he's like, no, she's 17. She's getting on in years. And Mary is like clearly taken with the wise character he portrayed on stage, but also unsettled by this apparently very old man going out with 17-year-old chorus girls. And he does say something along the lines of, you know, this makeup makes me look older than I look. And we assume that she's actually thinking, oh, so he's actually 60 and looks 75. As the scene goes on, she never appears to take the hint that he's actually much, much younger than 75. Well, it's because when he takes off the forehead wrinkles and she's supposed to be surprised that there's no wrinkles there, there are still some wrinkles because Jimmy Cagney's in his 40s. (laughs) This is all pre-sunscreen. So finally, he asks her to do a song and dance number. She does a little uh, bark and wing, and he says it's okay, but then proceeds to do a much more animated bark and wing. Ending with a heel click. It's amazing. Ending with a heel click, which completely floors Mary, and she is alternately frightened and amazed. And I believe George then asks her out, presumably leaving the chorus girl alone. Yeah, he does a lot of throwing people over in this movie that never really gets addressed later on. Right. As he asked her out, he's like, come on and get a cheeseburger with me. And I was like, what about the, the chorus girl? You're going to go roller yeah, so skating. Mo- what's it called? What'd she say? It's a moonless night. 
the first date of 20 years of dating exclusively before a proposal in the 1910s or a kiss. And no teens. kissing no it's like earlier than that like they should be starting to get together in like the 1890s oh, George God, is yeah. born in 1878 yeah, it would have been the 1890s, a time famous for long dating and long engagements. I did allude at the start of the episode to the idea that the real George Cohen may have misled people about his birth date. He famously, in real life and in the song Yankee Doodle Dandy, claimed to have been born on the 4th of July. His baptismal certificate, which is a stand-in for birth certificates for much of Western history, says that he was born on July 3rd. <laughs> which is notably not the 4th of July. Now, Cohen and his family long insisted that that was a mistake on the baptismal certificate. But nonetheless, the official records say he was not born on the 4th of July. So, should we move on to the second point? Uh, sure, yeah. He and Mary are presumably together. He's kind of promised to take her on the vaudeville circuit. That's right. So, point number two is giving her a musical number. So Mary is supposed to go out and perform some very traditional number with not a lot of personality to it, I guess. But instead, George Cohen insists that she perform his number, which is entitled The Warmest Baby in the Bunch. And in my subjective opinion, it is by far the worst number in this movie. Dreamy eyes that sparkle and she rolls them mighty cute. Colored gentlemen say that lady certainly is a beaut. Go broke that she's a hot potato. She's a red hot radiator. She's the warmest baby in the bunch. He also has like arranged it with the orchestra to play this without telling the producer. It is very understandable that the producer would shut it down that fast in my opinion. It's just, it's not like he's giving her Yankee Doodle Dandy or Over There or uh, whatever super hit that this was going to be and the audience is going crazy for it. It's it's just not a great number. She's doing a lot of, you know, very coy facial expressions and, you know, arm swings and stuff. And George Cohen is trying to, you know, do the traditional movie thing of, don't you see this number is better? Although he doesn't really try to say that it's better. But the producer is watching what's going on and saying... No, there's a reason that I had this number in mind, and uh, what you've asked me for, this is not even substantial performance. Yeah, it's no, it's no give my regards to Broadway. So he threatens to blacklist George, the producer does, and George refuses to call her off, and they get into a scuffle, and it ends with the curtain collapsing, and George and the producer falling out on stage. This is a little ironic, because the 1919 Actors' Equity strike was in part protesting blacklists against actors who had pushed for more opportunities and better working conditions and george cohen opposed that strike well once you make it up the ladder you don't need to uh to pull anybody up after you so yeah so mary it seems like should get in a lot of trouble for this george certainly should get in a lot of trouble for this i guess george is no longer on that circuit and that's what he is pounding the pavement to sell his shows mary seems to have no real problem with how any of this has gone down. Which I think is kind of understandable. I mean, she was almost, you're seconds away from going on stage. Like, she's almost under a state of duress. So we can kind of give her a pass. I'm just like, this is the beginning of a long pattern of George taking advantage of Mary and Mary just being like, eh, You whatever. would not think that this would not be something that would endear George to Mary. And yet, 
there's not that many scenes with Mary in this movie. And this is, I think, the second or third scene with her in the movie. And this is meant to be just kind of like a, a playful, you know, get him in her good graces. And isn't he this great songwriter? But again, the song is not that great. He embarrassed her. He embarrassed himself. There's no reason why she should want anything to do with him after this. Yeah. And yet, we have three more That's points. That's right. So point three, I've put as give my regards to Broadway. And so this is not so much a, you know, substantial turning point, but it's kind of what we can infer in between. Whisper of how I'm yearning to mingle with that old time broad. Give my regards to old Broadway and say that I'll be there ever. So George Cohen is now, he's a big star. He's got his musical. Uh, this is little Johnny Jones. And Mary has a prominent role in it, uh, soloing. I guess we should take a, a moment to talk about this musical and just how ridiculous the premise is that Yankee Doodle Dandy is about George Cohen, or the singer, I guess Johnny Jones, saying, you know, bet everything on me, mortgage your homes, sell your precious family heirlooms, or, you know, put them on layaway, and I will win this race. And he loses, and everyone's going back to America, and they've, you know, presumably lost an aggregate of hundreds of millions of dollars, or hundreds of thousands of dollars betting all this money on him. And he's not saying, like, sorry, or you have every right to be bad at me. He's saying, Give my regards to Broadway. Like, hey, <laughs> when you get back there, uh, you know, we're still pals, right? Why don't you send him a nice message for me? Well, first of all, Little Johnny Jones is based on a true story. It's based on a real jockey named Todd Sloan, who was this, like, major U.S. racer who then, like, went to the U.K. and, and did kind of crappily and was accused of cheating. But then, as you point out, there's this other stuff like Give My Regards to Broadway, which doesn't really make any sense but is reflective of what musical theater looked like in the beginning of the 20th century, where really just like any old popular song would be put in it. It's like, all right, how can we shoehorn this song into the story? Yeah, I don't, I don't think anyone actually gave his regards to Broadway. I, I assume the means that he was thinking of would be by just walking down the street and telling it to random people. I don't think any of that happened. Hey. Hi. Hey there. Just walking up and down Broadway, waving at every person there. I feel like if you doubled it up with participating in the Easter parade, then that would be the way to do it. That concept baffles me still. <laughs> we should also mention when we're talking about Mary that before George became a success, when he was going around trying to sell his shows, Mary would often go along with him to sing the songs for producers. That's right. So you can tell between that number where they're singing a song and they get rejected and they meet Harris and end up working together to this number where it's a huge number. They've got dozens of people on stage. The production values, they've, they've got, got horses. horses on stage. The production values are obviously very high and she's got a prominent role that their at least professional relationship has significantly progressed. So point number four and point number five are kind of temporally close together, but I think they can be conceptually distinguished. So point number four is the song. So it all opens with George sitting at a piano and playing a song for Mary, not Marie, as he distinguishes, because Marie is what the uh, the snooty people call someone like that. But he's a common man, and he's talking to a common woman, and he's going to call her Mary. And it's very sweet. For it was Mary. 
Yeah, it is in its own way in the spirit of the original Yankee Doodle song, which is a song as written in England, making fun of people who are trying to be fancy. And this song, Mary, is also making fun of people who are trying to be fancy by calling Mary Marie. I am very curious, since I guess neither of his wives was named Mary, do you think that he just came up with the name or that there was like a mistress or something? I don't know what inspired him to write the original song. Mary was the middle name of his second wife. Aha. So she may have gone. And so that's what the movie seized on. So he writes her this song and soon after that goes off to try to win over the wallet and contract rights of, and not the heart, of one Ms. Faye Templeton, who was a huge Broadway star at at the time. She is initially not sold at him. Uh, She goes off to do her performance. He's waiting in her dressing room. When she gets back, she's locked out of her dressing room for a moment. She gets inside and she finds that he has written an entire number in her absence during the first act, which she was performing in. And we should acknowledge the reason that she is dismissive is because she's like, he's doing stuff for the masses. It's like patriotic claptrap. Like, I'm better than that. And this number that he has is not at all. It's not the Mary song and it's not even really romantic. It's more about just living in New Rochelle, New York, and being 45 minutes from Broadway, which I think is the name of the song, 45 Minutes from Broadway. And, you know, it does sound, not to be too dismissive of the great George, but it does sound like something that one probably could have written during the first uh, act (laughs) of a musical. Although he does have a surprising amount of sheet music written, given that that's the case. But after he plays that, she notices that he has some additional music which I'm not sure why he brought with him in the first place. And also Sam Harris is like, oh yeah, check out this other song. Like Sam is like, let's make this deal. Keep, keep feeding her songs. She liked that one. And George tries to say like, no, no, she can't have that one. And Sam is like, no, you have to play this song for her. So he plays the song, Mary, or does she play it? I forget. Uh, He plays it and she sings it. He plays it and she sings it and she loves it. And this is the number more so than the 45 minutes from Broadway number that really wins her over and gets her to sign on with the team. And this is another example of Mary, his, I guess, girlfriend still at this point, just being unreasonable, (laughs) (laughs) unreasonably understanding about the whole situation. You expect her to fight. And then he tells her about it. She goes, no, you have to hire this person. It's good for your business. Like, I don't need them to break up over it, but I need Mary to, like, have some feeling about it. I need Mary to have some feeling. And this leads us to point five. So, as we've mentioned, George discloses to Mary that he's had to give the song to Faye Templeton. He comes home with some flowers and some candy. He bought the flowers and the candy came with it and confesses that he had to give the song away to Faye Templeton. Mary says she figured that when he came home with the flowers and candy. And then Mary begins having a conversation about having to look after George. Right. She says there are like a lot of people who are good singers, but not so many good looker afters. And as soon as she saw George, she knew he needed looking after. And then he says, how would you like to look after me for a little while longer? I should get the exact quote. It's like, how would you like to look after me forever or something? Right. It might even be something corny, like extending that contract. Anyway, it is the most anticlimactic proposal of all time. Again, I thought they had been married for like 30 minutes of the movie prior to this. He does say, it's funny because 
Harris comes over to the apartment and says, oh, you're here, something, as if, like, they've recently started dating and, like, he's paying some nighttime visits to Mary's apartment or something. Yeah, I guess. It's weird. Because at this point, she's a second woman, but we just don't know that yet. Yeah, I just assumed they had been married for a long time. I certainly would have assumed that they had kissed. And this sort of behavior even continues after the proposal. Like, after George retires from Broadway to become a farmer... He and Mary in, like, old age makeup are, like, living on their farm when a phone call comes in and Mary's like, hey, I just heard from Sam. He's got a show and he needs you to be in it. Like, he's out of money. You got to do it. And George is like, oh, I don't, I don't know. I'm not sure that I want to do something like that. And Mary's like, you have to go and do a show. And George is like, guess what? I was on the other line when you talked to Sam. And as soon as you hung up, I called him back and took the job. And Mary's like, I'm so glad you did that. And I'm like, first of all, why was this lie necessary? Second of all, Mary, again, have an opinion about this. I'm assuming this was a future point. This, too, well, point five right? is the proposal because that's kind of what consummates the relationship. And this was all, they were just kind of appendices. Um, Will, if you'd like, I do have the exact proposal line that George says. Please do. So what Mary says is, the minute I saw you without your beard, which was when they were both teenagers. I knew here was a little boy who needed a lot of looking after, so I gave myself the job. There are a lot of singers you know, but really few very good looker actors. And George says, darling, how would you like a lifetime job of looking after? Leading lady, run of the play. There may be a few heartaches after the curtain goes up, but I can guarantee you some laughs. How does it sound? So his his proposal was like, Trash was Throw like the a whole man away to her like <laughs> affectionate <laughs> insult. So if she hadn't said that, how in the world was he going to propose? I mean, he was definitely going to, I think, because I do believe that the proposal is in part intended to deflect from the fact that he had just given away her song. I I like to think that if this exchange hadn't happened and he just hadn't had the perfect comeback, he would have written a musical to propose like Charlie and Always Sunny. <laughs> We've seen that he can crank them out pretty quickly. I mean, it would even, like, that proposal song from The Nightman Cometh would even work when she's like, ever since I saw that little boy take off the beard, he could go, I was that little (laughs) boy, that little baby boy was me. I once was a boy, but now I am a man. Like, it works. All right. I fought the night man, lived as gay man. Now I'm here to ask for your hand. I think we're okay. All right. (laughs) Any more about the relationship, Tim, in this 90-minute episode where we just finished the points? I did have two kind of appendices. So the first one that happens is... That's the number you're supposed to have, so that's good. (laughs) So the first appendix is... Will, you're supposed to have one appendix. Really? (laughs) <laughs> it's one appendix okay. um, immediately following this scene Faye Templeton performs the number and so they're sitting up in the box seats and George goes you know I really think Mary should have sung this and Mary goes oh that's alright Faye has the song but I have the author and by Aww. this point they finally have rings yes they do and, and have presumably kissed a second time <laughs> every time he writes a new song he gets one kiss classic conditioning structure (laughs) to be clear it would not be classical conditioning that would be operant conditioning it's really closer to uh to phantom thread than i thought about in the initial place but the final appendix the second and final appendix is as we've already discussed 
the conversation between George and Mary many years later in life, after he's retired, after his sister and parents have passed away, when they mutually decide, although not at the same time, that he should return to New York to work on a play and star in a play about the then U.S. President Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Apparently, it's very scandalous to portray the president. Everyone talks about it like it's a dangerous thing to do. I assume it's just because he's alive at the time. Yeah, but I mean, like, we kind of take it for granted that there are going to be, like, like, that there were going to be, like, six Trumps on TV during the administration. I mean, we already did see President Lincoln treated as a deity. Maybe that was less Lincoln-specific than we realized, and this is kind of a universe where all presidents are, in some sense, deities. Wow, I bet President's Day was really different back then. Yeah, Mark, maybe you're thinking twice about having President's Day be your big day, given uh, the added significance that we've realized it has. It's especially a, it's essentially a religious holiday. Yeah, I didn't know it was a day of worship. Oh my god, that is so ridiculous. The idea that it's that FDR would call someone to the White House who played him on stage to yell at him. That's the implication of the movie. Not that it's a good thing. The idea is that FDR is going to ground him almost for playing him. Right. On it's stage. that it's like somehow dangerous to do this. Well, the, they do kind of acknowledge that with Mary saying, look, it's not like they're going to, you know, call you up at dawn and send you over to the firing squad. I think it's just because this movie's version of George Cohen has never done anything wrong in his life. So this is the first thing he thinks he might have done wrong. He doesn't know how to handle it. That's fair. He assumes he'll just, it'll be capital punishment. So he does the role, FDR calls him to the White House, and this is where we snap back to present day, and he, he gets, gets the, medal, the medal, walks out into the street, into a parade that is singing over there. And then he sings over there. All right. So, after watching all of this, do we find the romance between George and Mary believable? I don't imagine we've laid any hints as to where our opinions will end. You know, Mark, we've talked a lot about movies that are based on real life and been like, how do we criticize the romance in these movies that are based on real life? We have found the answer. This is one of the least believable romances we've ever covered on this show. It's not based in real life. It's entirely fictional. It's more fictional than some of the fiction movies right, we've covered. Right, at least How Stella Got Her Groove Back was semi-autobiographical. They didn't even mention, like, the four kids that George Cohen had in real life. Well, he and his wife only <laughs> kissed once in the movie, so I don't know where you think kids well, you could would get come from. One kid from kissing once. All right, so every week we rate the believability of a movie's romance on a ten-point scale, one being the least, ten the most believable. Tim, where would you rate the romance of Yankee Doodle Dandy? I'm gonna say um, four minus one is three, as I learned from this movie uh, in a crucial scene. So I'll give it a three. See, the thing is, Tim, that's just arithmetic. And without four, there's zero. And I don't think I'm going to wind up there, but I think I'm going to be closer to the zero than the four. What are you going to give it, Will? Uh, I think I'm giving it, like, a one. (laughs) I was going to go with, like, a two or a three. I feel like this wasn't exactly an era known for women being allowed to have opinions. Mary just takes it to an extreme level. I am all, The timeline is also a thing for me, too. And normally when we say that, we mean the timeline is too short. And here it is much too long. <laughs> <laughs> this is the first movie I think we've ever covered where we said that the timeline <laughs> was too long to make sense. And yet, <laughs> it is. Yeah, this is a two, not a three. Because... 
she dates him for 20 years and he dates her for 20 years without kissing. And then they get married. So do we think that George and Mary are dateable? Mary is too passive. Like, she is too unopinionated for me to have any interest. She would be frustrating to try to interact with. George, a little too cocky and self-sure throughout the movie. And he has reason to be because nothing ever goes wrong in his life. But it still seems like it could get I mean, old. perhaps ironically, like, the romance itself is very difficult to believe, but these two people definitely do belong together. And perhaps they're the only two people who each other could date. I think that is definitely true. Now, Tim, if you did have to pick someone in this movie to date, who would it be? Oh, that is very easy. And the answer is Faye Templeton. Uh, she's a great singer. She's classy. She's got style and taste. She doesn't kowtow to the... Uh, you know, the base impulses of the masses who love just anything George Cohen spits out. She needs to be catered to. What I like about Faye is that she's snobby, but persuadable. Exactly. She's rationally snobby. She doesn't need to be brought down. She's not someone who has to be embarrassed or anything before she agrees. She is convinced about the merits of his argument, which I respect. Yeah. Who are you thinking, Mark? Uh, I was leading towards Harris. He's the pro-labor writer who cares and also just does nothing in this movie. But I like that he was on the side of the strikers. So that's not in the movie. A thing I like about Sam Harris that is in the movie is like the scene where George takes advantage of the fact that Sam does have a meeting with a producer and George pretends to be his partner so that George can try to sell a musical. And Sam takes a couple moments to catch on, but then goes with it and, like, is willing to try kind of wacky ideas. That is a good scene, too, where Harris is just like, this meeting's not going great for me anyway. I might as well see where this goes. I do like the movie's kind of refusal to admit that Harris actually does anything. Like, they don't want to say that he does the music or the lyrics and even the book. Like, the one scene we see with the book, like, he gets marched out of the office because his libretto's bad. Yeah. Like, it's not exactly clear what Sam does. Do you think George and Mary would stay together? Really quickly, I'm going to say that I would date, um, I would date Franklin Roosevelt. (laughs) Great. Wait, you would date, you would date the Blofeld FDR that sits behind his desk, or you would date the George Cohen FDR that dances around stage? Well, if I could choose, I would date the George Cohen FDR because he seems fun. Uh, I think that musical number sounds like a human. (laughs) Yeah, but (laughs) I don't know if I get to choose him. So I will say Blofeld FDR, who is played by two people, but is uh, not anti-Irish, which works for me. And uh, I guess is patient because he listens to this (laughs) entire movie as a monologue. (laughs) Oh, my God. Do you think George and Mary will stay together? They're both they both seem on the verge of death based yeah, off of they the made old it. age makeup they're given. They made it. Last question, Mark and Tim. Should Yankee Doodle Dandy, like so many movies we have covered, be made into a stage musical? Absolutely. I mean, I was so just 80 years later, the stuff that they did in this movie with the treadmills and people walking around and the stage opening back to go way farther back than you thought a stage so could cool. go. Would absolutely love to see that. You gotta watch Gold Diggers of 1933, Tim. Because if you want to see some cool treadmill action, that movie's the bomb. Mark, do you have thoughts about a musical, Yankee Doodle Dandy? 
I'm just wondering what a musical Yankee Doodle dandy would do that the work of George M. Cohen doesn't. I guess just it's like a it's it would be a jukebox musical in a way, which this kind of is. Right. Like to people living at the time, these would all be hit songs of like their parents generation. Um, There is not a musical of Yankee Doodle Dandy. In 1968, there was a jukebox musical bio, whatever, bio play of George Cohen called George M. Exclamation Point. That's probably the better way to do this. It starred Joel Grey as Cohen. It was a titanic flop. It had like maybe one performance. Like it, it was a disaster. It actually was doing a little bit of what we asked for. Like it got into some of the more complicated stuff about Cohen, like the fact that he could be kind of controlling, like actually in that play where he played FDR, where he came out of retirement, there were a bunch of issues where like he basically wanted to be in charge and everyone involved was like, no, you're an actor. You have to do what you're told. It gets a little bit more into his actual tension with Harris. So it's weird is that like that one was the flop and it was a flop basically because people thought it was this. Like, people said, no, it's 1968, the Vietnam War is going on. I don't want to see Yankee Doodle Dandy on stage, but it was the more complicated engagement with it. That sounds interesting. I still don't know if it's necessary in this time for uh, Yankee Doodle Dandy on stage. Sure. It does feel a little bit like you know, the relationship between Yankee Doodle Dandy and George M is kind of like the relationship between The Greatest Showman and the musical Barnum, which is like the more abrasive telling. You couldn't get abrasive enough to tell P.T. Barnum's story. My favorite thing about The Greatest Showman is that io9 reviewed it, despite being a, like, SF website, because they said, if you know anything about the life of P.T. Barnum, the only genre into which you could put The Greatest Showman is fantasy, and therefore we are reviewing it. That's amazing i hadn't heard that before it's a fun review (laughs) oh sorry you'll probably have to cut this but i just i do have to say i love the scene with the kids that run up to him while he's on the hammock and the kids the girl starts singing jeepers creepers and that i looked it up it was from 1938 that that song came out so that would be like now like a kid runs up to like andrew lloyd webber and start singing like a Lil Yachty song or like a Lil Nas X song. It's like, this is the garbage that the kids are listening to today. And to be clear, Andrew Lloyd Webber in this scenario is played by Jason Statham. Yes, exactly. Only he can convey that sense of just like existential disgust at hearing a top 40 pop song past your prime. Andrew Lloyd Webber hops in his hot rod and drives into space to get away from the kids. Fast Nine coming out. Nope, already out. Never mind. All right. Well, I think that about does it for Yankee Doodle Dandy. (laughs) Next week, we will be discussing a movie called Trouble with the Curve, a film I have never heard of. It's a Clint Eastwood baseball movie. Mark just made a very confused face. I have never been less interested in a movie that we've done for this podcast. Amy Adams, Justin Timberlake, the big three. Okay. (laughs) At least I have some Amy Adams to get me through. Until then, you can follow the show at Facebook and Twitter at Love the Love Pod, and you can email us questions or movie suggestions at lovethelovepod at gmail.com. Make sure to rate, review, and subscribe, especially on Apple Podcasts, to help other people find the show. All right, Tim, what is the best piece of dating advice we got from this movie? If you're 17 years old, and there's another 17-year-old who thinks you're 75 years old, and you want to win her over, 
the best thing to do is tap dance for her. I like that advice. My advice, if you kiss before you have known someone for 20 years, you are moving too fast and need to take a breath. Mark, this is a perfect example of the fact that nice girls don't let men kiss them until after they're engaged. Nice girls don't let men kiss them until after they're engaged. Men don't want the bloom rubbed off. (laughs) Even if it takes 20 years. All right. uh, My advice is going to be that, I guess, if you have bad news, soften the blow with candy. Or a proposal. So there you go. Until next time, I'm a ginger. And I'm gay. So between the two of us, we know everything there is to know about romance. Bye! I'm a Yankee Doodle Dandy. Yankee Doodle do or die. A real live nephew of my Uncle Sam. Born on the 4th of July. I've got a Yankee Doodle sweetheart. She's my Yankee Doodle joy. Yankee Doodle came to London just to ride the ponies. I am that Yankee Doodle boy. And here I am going on like Tennyson's book giving you the story of my life. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to do that. You should have stopped me.